Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20. I'll be reading Luke 20, verses 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Father, I pray for clarity in my mind and thought that I will deal honestly with this text and that as a teacher I'd be gifted to explain and unfold what you communicate here. Lord Jesus, let your words ring and thus let praise and joy in an anticipation of that great resurrection day be fomented in here in your people to the glory of your name. Amen. Doctrine is really important. In other words, what one understands the Scriptures to be teaching accurately is crucial. In this text, when Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees, who I don't believe in a resurrection, his response to his fellow religious Jewish brethren is not, oh, come on, guys, we differ here, so let's not bicker over this. As long as we're all sincere about what we believe. Some believe that there's a resurrection and others don't. But Jesus didn't answer that way. Instead, He forcefully refuted their interpretation. Their doctrinal error 
Apparently, sound doctrine matters a lot to Jesus. It matters to Him, and it ought to matter to every believer because Jesus knows that to truly love other people may require warning them of their error over crucial doctrines of reality, of Christ, of Christianity. That's what He does here. And we will see that with His clarity, with His correction, refuting the Sadducees, comes Jesus' affirmation of one of the crucial and central doctrines of true Christianity. The resurrection from the dead. And with it we see this morning the fact that in the future resurrected state, there will be no more sexual relationships. Let's, let's go to the text. The Sadducees come up to him. We, we haven't heard really anything about them yet. Hear a lot about the Pharisees. Back during this time, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were much like the Republicans and the Democrats of their day. They were both very passionate. They had their philosophies. They had their theologies. They were religious. They were serious. And they were at odds with one another on theology and on practice. The Sadducees, as opposed to the Pharisees, were much smaller in number. They were mainly made up of wealthy aristocrats. Much of the ruling class within Jerusalem was made up of Sadducees. Most of the chief priests during this era were of the party of the Sadducees. The Sadducees rejected the oral traditions that we see Jesus so often come against that the Pharisees hold to these unwritten at that time traditions of practicing their religion. Not the Sadducees. The Sadducees also had no problem collaborating with the Roman Empire when it helped their particular purposes. And one of the strange things about the Sadducees was their view of Scripture. They did not accept all the Old Testament as Scripture, but only the books of Moses, the Torah, the Law, uh, we call it the Pentateuch, the five books, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was it for them. And the one huge thing that set the Sadducees apart from all other peoples was their belief that there was no such thing as life after death. And certainly there was no bodily resurrection from the grave. They were living for this world, even in their religiosity. religiosity. Philosophically and theologically, they were essentially materialist. Nothing beyond matter. You die, you're gone. It's over. The first century Historian Josephus, born in 37 A.D., he was a Jew and born in Jerusalem, but ended up in Rome. And 
He wrote much about what was happening in the first century Judaism, even about Jesus, but he says this about the Sadducees. As for the persistence of the soul, penalties in death's abode and rewards, they, the Sadducees, do away with them. They say the soul perishes along with the body. This all produced a blatant denial of the resurrection. And later on, a few decades later, the Apostle Paul, when he is on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, he knows this and he uses this difference of the Sadducees and the Pharisees in order to make a division against all of his enemies. This is what we read in Acts 23. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And Luke tells us, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. Because the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay, that's who they are. Jesus is finally in town. He's in the temple courts. The Sadducees are the ones who mainly had the purses of money-making in the temple. Jesus got their attention turning over the tables, but they now endeavor to succeed where we have seen over the previous weeks the Pharisaical type were not succeeding with Jesus. They have a trick question for Him. This will get them. Now, where this question they're going to ask is coming from is from a biblical law in one of the books of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's called the Leveret Law of marriage. We get the word leveret from the Latin levere, which means husband's brother. And I've debated whether I'll read it all, but I just want to because I think it's funny. So listen to this law in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay? And if the man does not wish to marry his sister-in-law, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. 
And if he persists, saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. I told you it was funny. All right. This is where they're getting this law. And they take this that Moses says and they concoct this hypothetical situation for Jesus and all the vast majority of Jews and other peoples of the world who believe in life after death and, and a resurrection in order to make them look silly. We get that kind of thing today with some atheists that think they're really wise with stupid, stupid hypotheticals. Here it is. Verse 27. And so there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And then the second took her. And the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Now you got to get, we don't believe in a resurrection. You people who believe in a resurrection, in the resurrection that you believe in, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had her, his wife. And they're saying it with a smirk. <laughs> yeah, okay, so stupid resurrection of the dead is, how's that going to work? Their hypothetical is this. If there really were a resurrection from the dead, then all eight of these people are going to have to figure out how they're going to relate to one another in this resurrected life. Duh. How can there be marriage relationships and those be restored in the resurrection, Jesus, in the afterlife? Because if they were, that would be breaking all kinds of biblical laws like incest and monogamy. See, they are implying here wrongly, and Jesus will get to this, that if there's a resurrection of the dead, it will be exactly like now. And now you got a problem with marriage. See how stupid resurrection is. That's what's behind their rhetorical question. Resurrection, Jesus? This woman? And now they're all alive. No one's dead now. Now they're all living according to you. All seven husbands. Who is she going to sleep with then? That's the question. Jesus responds. 
You're knuckleheads. Are you really that dense? And you're thinking, where? Mark is where. Mark lets us know what he actually said first. Luke, they don't always add everything. Mark says Jesus opened up with this response first. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. That's his response to knuckleheads. God is omnipotent. He can take dead, decayed, rotted dust of bodies and bring them into a new physical existence that is quite unlike the experience we have now in this life. Jesus is saying very clearly to them, you have wrongly assumed that resurrected bodily life is identical to what it is in this present age. Verse 34, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry, and women are given in marriage. That's what that means there. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for or because they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Okay, here, Jesus just divided human existence into two ages. This age, that age. This age of mortality, decay, sickness, death, sin, marriage, sex, bearing of children, over against that age, immortality, no sin, no marriage. Let's go home. <laughs> Let me first say what he does not mean before we try to wrestle with what he does say. First, when Jesus is talking about the resurrection here, He is not talking about some idea of an afterlife, of floating around on a cloud or something. No. He means on earth. The new earth and the new heaven. The redeemed, glorified, physical universe in which His people will dwell. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that then there will be no remembrance of our earthly existence and differing relationships, marital or any other types of relationships. In fact, I think much of eternity will have and see all of this earthly life so clearly and reflected through God's Christ-centered purposes 
that will redound to His glory and our joy, even those really difficult and hard and tragic and painful experiences down here. Thirdly, Jesus is not saying that believers will exist without a physical body. Many people have a weird idea that the afterlife, to be saved by Jesus means you're somehow going to be close to God in some bodiless, ghost-like vapor or some existence like that. And it's not true. Everybody who is or will be redeemed and thus resurrected as saved people by Jesus Christ will spend eternity in a glorified human body. Jesus quotes in this text one of the most famous texts in the books of Moses. The story of the burning bush where God reveals Himself to Moses. Look at verse 37. But that the dead are raised, Sadducees, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls Yahweh the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now this is what I think Jesus' logic is. Because he, he's, he, he's referring to Exodus 3.6 and he's just clearly implying it is in the present tense. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses, I am now their God, even though they died over 400 years ago. If someone comes up to you and says, I am your father's friend, that implies very clearly your Father is still with us here. If they come up to you and say, I was your Father's friend. He's dead. He's no longer living here with us. His point is, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are nothing but dust, then God cannot be their God. Take that, Sadducees. It's in the second book of the five books that you do accept. That's Jesus' implication. That's why Jesus doesn't go to really crystal clear resurrection passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah or Daniel or the Psalms or Job. He plays on their turf. But just so you don't miss it, make sure that this resurrection that the Scripture talks about is not just living, existing consciousnesses floating somewhere. It is being personally united with your body that died but changed and glorified just like happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Jesus declared in Matthew 24, and He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus said in John chapter 5, an hour is coming 
when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, buried, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown, the body, in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes, For the Lord Jesus Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And so Paul says to all of us who are believers in Philippians 2, our citizenship right now is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, when He comes back, will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Okay. That's enough? So when Jesus says we will be like the angels in heaven, He doesn't mean like angels in the sense of they don't have physical bodies. They're angelic beings, not human beings. He, he doesn't mean bodiless souls. He means like angels, we will no longer procreate, produce more human beings through sexual relations. That's what He means. Nor will we ever, like angels, ever now, then, die. Okay. Fourthly, Jesus is not saying that in the resurrection you will lose your sexual identity as male or female. Your maleness or your femaleness is a part of your very essence. It is a part of a human's identity. It's the part of you, who you are. It is, you can't separate it from your saying as a human being, I am Joe, or I am Sonia. When we get our glorified bodies, we will not be desexed. You will be forever male or female. Part of the glory of God's creative work of humanity is in making them. Male and female. He made them. In order to what? Reflect 
His image. Genesis chapter 1. Okay. Those are the negatives. That's not what Jesus means. So get rid of unbiblical ideas about this future state. Now here's the question. What did he mean by this remarkable statement? The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Let's start it this way. Marriage in this age, I think, has at least a twofold purpose. Childbearing, the bringing into existence other human beings in partnership. Childbearing, procreation, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's right there. Partnership, love, intimacy, care, a type of enjoyment of one person to the other person of the opposite sex in this particular relationship called the covenant of marriage. It is that 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 I think Jesus says will end in the resurrection. In other words, marriage between one man and one woman as an institution around which society in this age has been built and is to be built, that in that age will cease to exist. Marriage is supposed to be the foundation of society in this age and in that context of the covenant of marriage is where other human beings are to come into being and to be raised up in that unit. But then we will be like the angels in that we will no longer die. There will no longer be this need to reproduce children. Jesus, look at the text, He explains why marriage is no longer present in the age to come. You see verse 36 starts with the word for. Greek word gar. Meaning, here's the reason in that age they will neither marry nor give, be given in marriage. Because of this. They cannot die anymore. And I think the next because is he's explaining that they, are, they will be like the angels in that. Sons of God, daughters of God, being sons of the resurrection. So his, his reason, why do you say this, Jesus? No marriage or being given in marriage because you will be immortal. And thus there will be no marriage. Right. So for the first reason, for procreation, 
That seems to be really crystal clear. But I do think marriage has another purpose, and it's not merely for procreation. It is not good for man to be alone. Bible, right? Okay. So there's this other aspect of relationship, of fellowship, of, of intimacy. Does that cease? I think he is saying this. In this age where we have marriage, marriage then as the primary context for fellowship, intimacy, and vulnerability, then that will end. Let me say it this one. Go really slowly. Marriage as God's temporary metaphor for the marriage of Jesus and the church, it'll end. Because the reality will be. Is that making sense yet? All right, let's get really honest for a moment. In our present state, we're all in this very moment, in our mortality, in our sinful state, everything's broken. Of believers, it's broken. The only difference between a believer right now and someone who is not yet a believer is that God the Holy Spirit has come into them and He has changed something at the core of their being very significantly. But we still carry our brokenness and our sin as He's working on us. Okay, In this state, we see nothing clearly. Like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, we see everything through a glass darkly or a mirror dimly. It's not that we don't know anything. We know things, but we see and understand and comprehend nothing purely, clearly, without it being fogged over with our remaining sin that affects our minds and our hearts and our desires. And our feelings. And so when we hear texts like this and the things I just tried to restate what the text says, it may feel that heaven without marital sex not that appealing to some. Now, I think the fact is this. For some, it sounds like really good news if they're in a really Hard marriage. Sweet relief. But if you're in love with your spouse, you're happy, then this text could feel sad. Sad to what? To to not have that exclusive soul to soul affection care, fellowship, culminating over and over in sexual relations? How could heaven be heaven without you, honey? Okay. 
just want to acknowledge we're all human and we feel that tension. So here's my best help to try to go at it for the rest of the sermon. The resurrection of the saved dead is the arrival of all believers from all ages and all times and all centuries as the one pure, holy, without blemish wife, bride of Jesus Christ. Then, when that happens, all types and shadows, pointers to that eternal reality, will cease. The shadow of what marriage was created for Marriage was created in order to placard Christ in the church. Before God created anything. We'll see that in a second. But when the resurrection happens, redemption is now consummated. The marriage of Christ in the church is consummated. Then there is no more need for the pointers. Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, turn there. Ephesians 5 is the best way I know to try to get out, I mean, get at this statement that there's no marriage, no sex in heaven or in the resurrection in eternity. Let me start with verse 24. Paul writes, Now, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He This is Jesus with us now. Listen to it. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her, the church, by the washing of water with the Word, so that Jesus might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. And he will do it. Okay, now just jump down to verse 31 just to save time for a moment. See, then Paul goes on and he quotes the marriage passage of creation in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two physical human beings, male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at the next sentence. This mystery is profound. And I, Paul, am saying that it refers, and I'm gonna, this is what he means, I'm going to add this word here, it refers ultimately to Christ in the church. Our marriages are a type 
They're a shadow. They're a pointer. You know types and shadows? God tells the children of Israel, His people, how to build the tabernacle. How to build each piece of furniture in the sacrificial systems and to kill and slaughter animals. Why? They could never take away sin. They were not the reality of your sin being taken care of. They were pictures. They were types. Shadows pointing to Christ who is the perfect sacrifice. And when He came 2,000 years ago, the others fall away. No more need. In the resurrection, it's complete. Marriage is a picture. Falls away. Paul quotes Genesis, and they become one flesh. That one flesh between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Let's be real clear. That one flesh in covenantal sexual union is not ultimately about Joe or Sonia. It is about Christ and the church. The closest earthly picture that we have for the union of Christ in the church is the one flesh aspect of marriage. I mean, if I just let me say, the closest, imperfect, and profoundly limited picture that we have of the union of Christ in the church is the covenant of marriage. All this is what Jesus says here. I know, for us it is, for me it is. I have better times at it than others. It is hard to see and grasp at moments. But, I'm going to take Jesus' words for a minute. But those who are considered Worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead, I am confident we all will say then in the resurrection, wow, yes, see it. During the mortal evil age, marriage and particularly sex in marriage was wonderful, but it was just a picture of how much more wonderful it is to be finally, eternally united, intimately joined with our Savior in the Godhead. Bridegroom, Jesus. The good news about this, if you really think about it, is that Two believers in a happy marriage for three years or 63 years will not love each other less in the resurrection. Because then we will be our 
sinless, perfected selves at our ultimate best, which is very unlike now in this age. Our resurrection existence then will be unimaginably exalted from our present experiences of everything now. Those who are considered, he says, worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Though they're physical. Because they are like angels and sons and daughters of God and sons and daughters of the resurrection. Compared to angels, Jesus says, we will be existing. Their angels are known biblically to be powerful, beautiful. We are humans, not angels. We are those who have sinned. Angels who sin have no redemption. They're called demons. We have sinned and we have been redeemed and come into the fullness in the resurrection. Those bodies are, they just have to be something that is impossible to grasp in our state. Right now, Paul talks that way much. We just, it, it is unimaginable what is laid up for us. So our bodies evidently will have a type of beauty and a type of power of which there is absolutely no conception right now. Our mental, intellectual capacities will be enlarged. We will no longer be affected by sin. As Paul says, we have been sown dead, died in weakness. We will be raised in power. So like angels, yet physical also, all of our flaws will be gone. Our joy in Christ. In God the Father and God the Holy Spirit will be full. We will think fully and clearly seeing the glory and the beauty of God in our salvation now sinlessly and unhinderedly then. There will be no more unrighteous desires. There will be no more sinful, covetous cravings, proud, arrogant thoughts, taking offense at resurrected brother so-and-so, or jealousies, or depression, chemical imbalances. There will be no more sin tainting and affecting our relationships with others in the body of Christ then. Like our sin affects and taints every relationship down here. Starting with spouses and then with everybody else. There will be 
no lack. It will be joy unhindered. Christ's joy in and through our entire being, soul, and body. That joy will be our emotion. So now, on earth, the marriage experience is that context. It's not the only context. Don't hear that. I'm trying to be biblical here on this. But that marriage experience, yeah, maybe I should add it, is one of the places to experience the most pain in life. And it's also the context where you can experience the most depth of vulnerability, of intimacy, of joy, of fellowship of growth, and of nurture. In the age to come, all of those things will continue in the resurrection, in our relationships with all the others of the body of Christ. None of that will end. In fact, to the extent we taste any true intimacy with others down here. The intimacy, the vulnerability, the clarity, the depth, and the joy there will be magnified and expanded beyond our comprehension. Jesus is not saying that love, I mean horizontally now towards us creatures, He's not saying that love there will end on the new earth. He's saying you are going to love your Christian husband and your Christian wife more, not less, in the resurrection. But, here's the point. All of God's people will experience true intimacy. True, non-sexual intimacy with all the members of the body of Christ. So in the hypothetical that the Sadducees posed to Jesus, the woman will be able to love her seven husbands perfectly. And those seven men will love her perfectly in the resurrection. Yet none of them will sleep with her in the state of marriage as we do in this age. All right, so just, just because, you know, two nights from now you'll be in a different mood and you'll wake up, really? No sex in heaven? <sighs> okay, I, I want to appeal for help here just a little bit to Jonathan Edwards. Ponder his thoughts on this. Think it's helpful. He wrote, back in the 1700s, he wrote, in heaven... The glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of. 
I wish I could write like that. Okay. The sweetness and the pleasure that shall be in the mind. Now here I think he's referring to, knowing Edwards, he's referring to seeing and knowing the beauty of the glory of the Lord in a way we've never known then. So that pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body, spirits for Edwards, it's his word for passions. It shall put the passions in Edwards, I would like, do you mean hormones? It shall put the passions of the body into such emotion, it shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. Now whether he's dead on or not, his point is dead on. Because this is Bible here. We can trust Christ in this. And this is Edwards' point. You won't be disappointed. If you feel now no sexual relation up there, you won't have that then. You will be deprived of Nothing whatsoever that is essential to your fullest happiness in eternity. That I'm sure of. And if you're not yet sure of that, Jesus has words for us. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so, I'm closing here. Jesus is not saying to a couple who has been in a Christ-centered marriage for 73 years that they will love their wife or their husband less in the resurrection. Or that that relationship that God gave them on earth will somehow be obliterated or have a lobotomy and no memory or no context for their eternity. He's not saying that at all. He is saying that what you experience now in this life in part with one person in the covenant of marriage, you will in non-sexual ways experience then with all of God's people. Friends, Spouse, strangers you know not yet. And you'll experience it on an infinitely higher level, caught up into the glory of God flowing through and in each person. Whether you have ever been married down here or not, That is, you, if you're one of these. Those who are considered worthy to attain to the, that age and to the resurrection. Make sure that's you. By worthy, 
We know enough gospel, I hope, at this church. He doesn't mean, did you do enough good stuff to become worthy? The worthy means those who are a part of the one bride of Jesus Christ. And to become a part of the one bride of Jesus Christ takes you to know that you and yourself are unworthy. You're a sinner. And you receive and embrace the free offer. To be there as one of the resurrected from the dead at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All who receive Him are the worthy. So believe in Jesus. Hmm. Father, I, I pray that the effects of this sermon will first and foremost Produce in us more of a longing for your return. And secondly, that it will produce within married people a context for their daily lives. A context that, yes, we're a picture of Christ an appreciation for all good things that are given to us here in this world, including marriage and pleasure, food, and that it will produce in those who are in unmarried states. I lose out on nothing. This is only a vapor. And all marriage here is only a picture of that which all Christ people will experience with Him forever. Oh, do that in, in